Hello and welcome to the Morrissey Exchange podcast. The information contained within this podcast has been provided as general advice only and does not take into account any of your personal circumstances or objectives. You should consider if this advice is right for you and consult your financial advisor for further information. This is the second part of a two-part interview with Mose Afsal from EFG AM, both a portfolio manager and the chief investment officer. Enjoy. So something which is obviously dear to our heart down here is um, how the Chinese would view the success or lack thereof of Putin's decision to invade Ukraine. Different reasoning, different everything, of course. Um, what do you think the key takeouts for the China? Well, I mean, it's hard for you to put yourself into their mind, but how do you think they are seeing the Western response to assist Ukraine? And how are they reading the playbook for themselves when, when Taiwan's put on the table? Yeah, so I think there's, um, I mean, there's, there's a clear, uh, you know, playbook here. You know, China... Um, risks what happened to to Russia they get cut off of the international system you know they're they're kind of left you know you're already starting to see things like semiconductors and so and so forth already come through so there's a path that they can see that's not great for their economy or their people so I think it's um, it's been a pretty strong deterrent and the fact most importantly is the Americans the Europeans uh, Australians, everybody's got behind Ukraine. That to me is the key thing, is solidarity globally for it. And that, if you're Chinese, is a bit of a problem because mm. if there was lots of infighting going on and, and everyone was not on one side, you know, yeah, of course you've had the Indians have taken a slightly different view and so on and so forth, but... but um, um, if there's disunity or discord between the Western world about how to deal with Ukraine, the Chinese would have picked that up and would have used that. Uh, but the fact there was that unity uh, and that coming together means that that in anything they're thinking about is they're going to have to think twice or, or even three times. The, but the unity thing for me was the, was a key thing, and as well as putting the the um, uh, you know taking the reserves and all that sort of stuff, uh, you know, uh, of, of Russia. And the Chinese have a huge amount of US Treasury reserves mm. you know, today. So so I think, um, you know, it, certainly uh, on, on Taiwan, you know, they had to think twice uh, or even three times before they would do something. Um, so, uh, and even though they'd been provoked, I mean, Nancy Pelosi going to Taiwan was a great thing. But you've got to remember, we're coming into midterms. The American population needs, you know, um, has become more and more anti-China. So to win the midterms, to show that Biden's actually strong around US policy, I think they had to go through with a lot of these things. President Xi on the other side just had his confirmation. Mm. He had to do the same thing. As he wheeled his counter, not his counterpart, but one of his lieutenants out in front of that yep. bizarre. But anyway, yeah. So you no, know, exactly. But that shows strength, right? So, so I think um, that to me is is um, 
uh, is why we probably had heightened tension. Mm. Uh, let's see if they de-escalate once the midterms are out of the way. It'll be interesting to see if there's a bit of a stand down uh, of hostilities there. But I think it's become such a bipartisan issue for uh, Americans that they will, you know, they'll continue to stay you know, China hawks. But there's one thing I wanted to say, which I think is really important. So when you think about the Chinese, what, are, what is the most important thing for the Chinese Communist Party? Uh, and what's less important? The most important point, um, thing for the Chinese Communist Party is stability and civil stability. That is the number one thing. Taiwan and others really come down second, third, fourth, fifth. That is the number one. If, because of certain actions, it creates huge civil unrest in China, that's a big bad thing for, for yeah, right. the Chinese Communist Party. So I think that we often take situations like Taiwan as a single point of reference. But the reality, there's something much more important, that's civil stability. Because the Chinese Communist Party does not want to repeat what they've had in the past and worry about disintegration. So I think that is something people just forget, you know, because we, we're, we're used to taking single points. That is the number one. So if they attack Taiwan, that then creates instability in the country, lots of unemployment, lots of issues, people are unhappy, that causes the downfall of the Communist Party. Communist Party is number one. Could you then go on to say that they would be showing weakness in not taking Taiwan, which could destabilise their strength internally? We shouldn't do, really, because, I mean, do the Chinese people really care about the Taiwanese issue? It may, but more, more goes to the lack of strength that they feared their yeah. leaders had, yeah. had actually Well, I think the, the problem is there's lots of issues within, you know, China at the moment. You know, we've got a real estate crisis, mm. we've got a property crisis, we've got this, you know, people still don't have full access to healthcare, etc. So there's many, many issues that China needs to deal with. I always feel that sometimes the Taiwan thing is just like, you know, you create a war to create distractions yeah, and yeah. problems at it's home. Yeah, red herring. Yeah, so I just wonder whether it is that because... Okay. Because I think, you know, it kind of masks some of the issues. Um, so I, I, I don't know. I mean, it's a good question. I don't know whether not going for Taiwan shows weakness. Maybe externally, but I don't know how that's, that feels in, within China. It's not very clear. Well, and, and this could be, again, this could be my perspective being a, being a Westerner. And, you know, you, we, we read the press as mm. it's delivered here. But why do you think they're so... Um, provocative or reactive to minor issues and we, we're expected to let them slide. What, what's that about? Why is there this expectation that we, um, we being Western society, uh, allow some of these communist nations, particularly China, um, exhibit such extraordinarily provocative comments and, and feed into that yet we're expected to back off? Um, I, I think it, you know, if you're, if you're in China, Communist Party, uh, you know, they see stability, right? So they say, we don't have these leadership issues like mm. we've had with Liz Truss in the UK or, or that, you know, US midterms or US elections, you know, who knows the results and there's all this, 
you know, storming of Congress and all this sort of stuff that the Americans have had to deal with. So um, that's because you tap your old mate on the shoulder and just wheel him out so he <laughs> yeah, doesn't challenge you. Exactly. But 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 for them, they see this as we're very stable, we're long term, yeah. our system works. But look at all these other guys in the Western world, where you know um, Liz Truss is you know, prime minister only for a few weeks. You know that shows for them weakness, and they believe that the democratic system is weak, is a weak system, mm. right? Because they, a, they see their system and it's complete, complete leadership stability, whereas we have weak systems. So, um, and then obviously you've had the aut autocratic systems in the Middle East and so on and so forth as well. So, so I think, um, um, uh, you know, as long as they're kind of left alone, I don't think they see it, but they see that the democratic system has been a weak system, mm. uh, you know, psychologically. So, so I think that's where, you know, they always look. They always think that the democracies are weak, and and leadership is weak, um, and they have a more superior model. It's hard to begrudge their you know long term perspectives too. You know, they look out a hundred years, which I, I find. I'm completely jealous of, you know, we yeah. do band-aid systems, whether yeah. it be infrastructure or tax or whatever the, the case might because be. Because we have election cycles. And, which is a shame, but it's also that, that struggle which creates what I would have perceived to be the right decision. Um, yeah, that's, I suppose that's, that's, that's the issue, isn't it? That's the difference <laughs> that, that, between the two yeah, systems. That, exactly, yeah, exactly. Um, on that issue, do you have a global vision? You know, we've got such staunch left and staunch right and seems to be getting worse. The media love to fuel us versus them, whether you're the us or them or whoever the case may be, communism versus democratic societies. What do you see the global setup being, you know, within, say, 30, 40, 50 years? So I think there is a... So yeah, the the last you know decade or so, fifteen years or so, being created, and you know, there's one stat that I use often in my presentations is looking that in the United States, um, uh, low income earners have not had a real wage increase since 1985. Wow. So, so because of globalization, because of technology, and so on and so forth, the the sort of lower end of the economic scale in terms of workers just not had a wage increase for such a long mm. time. So that wealth divide has really been sort of, you know, growing and growing and growing. Now, going back to the Chinese, the reason why they put these policies in place because they want to close that gap. They felt the gap was getting too big. In the Western world, we've had that uh, and that has, is, a, is a big problem, you know. So I think maybe we need to go in a world where actually we do need to narrow that gap um, between uh, you know, the rich and, and poor. Do you think there'll still be you know, strict right countries, staunch left countries? So, so no, so, so I think that's the problem, is that Trump is, is right-leaning, but, but the issue was is that he was very popular with those lower-income yes. uh, uh, workers, and he particularly went after that group of people mm. um, who typically would be more left-leaning, right? So I think those typical boundaries or barriers, you know, I think uh, are ultimately going to become less and less. I think, though, and this is 
something we'll see. I think that the next group of presidents is going to be much, much younger. Yeah, right. So we've seen Rishi Sunak come yeah. in. How old is he? Uh, oh, he's in his 40s. Oh, he's 40, 40 yeah. years. Yeah, in his early 40s. So, so, um, so I just think that, you know, you look at Biden and Trump, I mean, just, <laughs> you know, if Trump gets in, they're all in the 80s. Yeah, exactly, yeah. In, the, in, the, in the 80s, you know. So I think the next group of uh, presidents and prime ministers are actually going to be skewing young. Because mm. I think people are kind of fed up with, with, with uh, octogenarians, octogenarians, you know, and say, no, we actually probably need to skew young. And those skew young are going to be much more focused on closing the gap between the, the rich and the poor. Um, and uh, so I think that's going to be quite an interesting uh, Why would that be more focused on closing the gap? It's a big issue. I don't think it goes away. And the problem is if you don't tackle it, it's going to get worse and then you get revolutions. Yeah, right. So, so I think, you know, many of, you know, sort of prominent CEOs like Jamie Dimon, for example, JP Morgan, you know, he's, he's been saying, look, you, we need to tax the rich more um, because, and redistribute some of that income because if we don't then it's going to get worse and then yeah. then you'll create revolution so so i think um um you know i think we're going to get more of that and by the way higher inflation rates help that divide to close up so so that's why i'm on this view of two to three percent inflation rather than the zero to two percent inflation we've had over the last 10 or 15 years which is, which is the more important country china because they're a major producer of stuff, or the US because they're a major consumer of <laughs> stuff. So I think um, uh, we wrote um, uh, a piece maybe three or four years ago um, talking about what we call the tripolar world, in that the world's gonna be sort of much more sort of built in these kind of three axes. You've got the America's axes, you've got the European axes, and you've got the Far East and, and, and Australasia axes. And so there's much greater interdependencies depending on where you are. And then there's other concepts called French-shoring. So rather than typically offshoring, you're now going to be French-shoring, so you're going to be focused on um, uh, doing deals and with partners that are going to be much, much more um, uh, closer to your, um, uh, to your point of view. So, for example, we already starting to see Apple move some manufacturing from China to India. Um, so that concept is going to continue to to um, you know to 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 continue. So I think we're going to. So the U.S. is U.S. like Australia have uh, abundant natural resources, and so you can't help thinking in this world where resourcing certainly in the next two or three years is going to be harder to come by. Um, due to Russia, Ukraine, due to energy, um, uh, new energy and so on and so forth coming through, that, um, um, that having a cheap production base mm. with oil, with gas, is going to become a bit of a structural advantage. Um, and obviously the US is a big beneficiary of that. Okay. All right. So let's, let's kick into a few of these other questions I've got here. So yep. given the breach... Breadth and reach of your coverage. Which countries or regions offer the most upside? Yeah. And which look the worst? Oh, that's a tough one. <laughs> um, I, I, I think um, countries like India look really interesting. Middle East looks really interesting. They're going through a bit of a big renaissance at the moment. 
they're opening up the capital markets, they are, you know, doing deals, you know, with Israel, for example, which is not something we'd ever consider. Um, uh, so, um, hmm. so, you know, there is a bit of a renaissance going on, um, and uh, that looks super interesting. You know, countries like Saudi and so on, they have big populations, and they've just been forgotten over the last 20 or 30 years. But obviously, we're all revenues high, and they've recently done loads of IPOs of their businesses. Um, that looks particularly interesting. Um, so I'm so India looks good. Middle East looks pretty solid as say new markets that people haven't really looked at um, for well, higher forever. risk. Um, well, they're dollar pegged, so mm. from a currency perspective, not as high risk as as some of the uh, you know or certainly the Middle Eastern countries. Uh, and not as bad as they used to be. So there are some interesting things going on there. And obviously, with energy dependency, you know, they have LNG, they have oil, they have those things that are in high demand at the moment. It looks quite interesting. Um, the um, the UK, I think, looks interesting. Uh, being yeah, you said that earlier. Yeah. You know, currencies at record lows. I think UK is very competitive. You know, I run a team uh, between UK, Switzerland, US and Asia. And when I look at the cost per person in London, looks really cheap. But manufacturing, software developers all thinking the same thing. Yeah. So I think there's going to be a bit of a renaissance due to the weaker currency, you know, developing and obviously highly educated, you know, population. So that is maybe a bit of a contrarian, you know. And how does uh, Australia look? To me, super expensive. <laughs> to us so, too. Don't worry. But. Uh, uh, you know, so I think so. so those are, I, I'll throw a couple of that, those out there. Uh, something that's different that, that your listeners probably haven't heard before. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the prices of battery metals have exploded, and in turn, the miners associated with them. Are you a believer in this boom, or have they overrun? Um, no, I, I am a long-term believer. I probably pivot to things like copper that have that have, have been. Um, um, uh, have been obviously hit by by worries about the global economy. They look a lot cheaper, mm. um, and we still need them. So for uh, the uh, the whole uh, electric story, look, I think this is going to be long running. You know, I don't think it's going to go away anytime soon. Um, it's interesting that people forget about copper, which is required, zinc, which is required, yeah. aluminum, you know, lead, etc., etc. Bang! It's all lithium. It, it's just interesting that you get this sort of yeah. I think I, yeah. Um, I, I think focus. I think things like lithium pricing will probably start to improve because there's plenty of lithium in the world, right? Mm. There's not much copper. So, yeah, correct. So well, we saw that eight percent spike over the weekend too, when the Chinese looked as though they were opening back up again. Yeah. But but I think for me, I think lithium. There's plenty of lithium out there. Yeah. You know, you just need to find it. And so there's a bit of a a resource mismatch, you know, uh, happening. But but that that will. Focus. That's why they call them commodities. Yeah, indeed. Um, cryptos. Do you consider cryptocurrencies as investment quality? Do you look at it as an investment possibility, or like me, do you think of it as having the, the qualities of a currency and nothing more? Um, so, obviously, the, the the easy answer is that the technology allows. Um, uh, cryptos to develop as they have have done is probably going to be replicated in, in normal finance over time. 
There are some interesting use cases around cryptos, um, Ethereum in particular, that I find quite interesting. Um, uh, I think NFTs are also interesting. I don't think they've been used to their proper extent. Today, they're used very much around speculation. Yes. But I think as we move forward, you know, um, NFTs will be used in, in virtually everything we do. So, yeah, right. so, so the key thing is, does Ethereum or some of these other um, uh, cryptocurrencies develop along those lines? That to me looks really interesting, right? Because I think there's some real use cases, being online gaming and any of those sort of things. Those are strong use cases. Um, so I'm, you know, I'm reasonably positive, but they're currency. So you know, like like gold and why gold suffered is high interest rates, you know, um, uh, you know, strong dollar or strong other currencies means the demand for those cryptocurrencies is diminished dramatically. In the end, just like anything else, we'll be left with three or four currencies and everything will yeah. just die. Uh, and then the use cases will be, you know, built around those, uh, you know, and there's some really interesting stuff that's going on there that, um, that I, I, I mean, the big thing is once the Federal Reserve has its own central bank currency, cryptocurrency, which is interchangeable with the dollar, does that just kill off everything else? Well, that you know, what, it's regulation, isn't it? Once regulation comes in, yeah. then the speculation will disappear dramatically. But you know, we were talking about currencies before, and and you know, the mess between the currency blocks and what happens over the ninety-year time frame, and um, it seems like it's got a logical place, particularly with the blockchain behind it going yeah. forward. I get your point by NFTs too, um, but yeah, you can see a handful surviving from my perspective. Yeah, yeah. But as an investment, I just I'm stunned. <laughs> it's 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 uh, it's one of those things. That it's a speculative asset. Is probably the best way, and you can make a lot of money in speculative assets. <laughs> um, what is your view of the Australian stock market, or are we too small for you to even consider? <laughs> Um, yeah, the famous question I we get when whenever we're international investors. Um, so yeah, look, it, it is a it's it is a, a much more um, it's a smaller market for us. So as global investors, um, and we typically when we come to Australia, we're looking at usually the two or three things that that make a difference in the international benchmarks. That is obviously the resource companies uh, and banks. So those are the two things that we'll you know spend a lo little bit more time. You know, thinking about uh, and thinking about credit cycles for the banks, of course, uh, and obviously global um, resources um, for everything else. Um, so uh, yeah, unfortunately, um, um, not not a big market for us. It's just infuriating. Our market has no balls. Our investor is the <laughs> investors are the same. We're, we're where we were fifteen years ago today because all we are. Are supermarkets, banks, and big resources. There's, I mean, there's, there's always the, the odd, odd uh, payments platform. Yeah, getting up and then coming yeah. straight back down again, exactly. Are you a punter or are you conservative? Oh, good question. No, I, 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 I'm sort of one of those classic people. I'm core and satellite. So I'll have a core <laughs> allocation where, you know, I'll have, I mean, um, anyone who knows me knows most of, my investment assets are in our own products, uh, so I'm a strong believer in our own yeah. products. Um, so yeah, virtually all my investment assets, are, you know, 95% are in our uh, in our own in our own funds. I have EFG stock, of course, <laughs> because uh, I've been here a long time. I've got uh, you get a lot of options. I get a lot of 
um, options in there. Uh, and cash. So those are three things that... that um, what that, component uh, is cash? How much? Uh, probably percentage. around sort of 15, 15, 15 to 20% would, for okay. me is cash. Because we also, you know, we work in financial services. So we've got leverage both the investments we make and we leverage into our career and EFG stock. So, you know, so the other side is, uh, is cash. And it's been a horrible investment over the last you know, ten, 10 years. Uh, but we you know we, we made some good returns out of markets you know over uh, over that period. So, but for me it is a core asset allocation, you know. And then you know I will personally think about you know uh, particular sectors that I'm interested in. I also do some private equity as well, uh, investing um, where I, I find some very interesting companies. Um, but um, um, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll, I will have a punt um, okay. uh, on the side. Well, on that last question, if I gave you a hundred grand today okay. and you had to invest it into something that you couldn't get that money out of for the next 10 years. Cool. Wow. Okay. What would it be? Ooh. So one investment? One investment. One investment. What could be, it could be a commodity. It could be a stock. It could be a country. Uh. What would it be? Wow, okay. Um, so I would probably invest that money if, it, if that's the only thing I could do. No risk profile considerations. Um, it's 10 years, lock it up and just see what happens. Um, I'm, I'm actually a bit of a bull on, on, um, on, on emerging markets, ex-China. Right, so who would that include? So those would be India, Middle East, Latin America. Yeah, right. Because if you look at the last decade, those emerging markets have made no returns mm. for investors over the last decade. And, but a lot of great stuff has happened. The central bank policy has been much more robust. Most of these countries were raising interest rates in 2021 when the Fed was doing it in 2022 and, and others were doing it in 2022. So they're kind of ahead of the game mm. and they could teach us a few things about inflation. So, so I think that some of the really most interesting, exciting companies are in that universe, um, and so I feel pretty pretty strong that the that, that those the areas and as I said they've been a horrible investment over the last decade, you know, um, and uh, you know maybe in a higher inflationary environment, you know, uh, um, and and companies that know how to survive in that environment, uh, you know, it's probably not a bad thing. Mose FSL, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. If you have any other queries about this discussion or require any other information, give us a call on 9268 shoot us an email or jump onto our website at morrisseygroup.net. Enjoy the rest of your week. The Morrissey Group is a corporate authorised representative of Shore and Partners Limited, ABN 24003221583. Our financial services guide is viewable at www.shoreandpartners.com.au. Any content within this podcast is subject to the terms and conditions of Shore and Partners Limited's disclaimer, as viewable at www.shoreandpartners.com.au forward slash disclaimer.